The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're going all the way back to around 3000 BC, long before the pyramids, when a horde of warriors from the east, led by the seemingly invincible King Memnon, has conquered all but a few of the local tribes with the aid of a powerful sorceress who can predict the outcome of the battles before they occur. When Akkadian warrior Matthias is tasked with assassinating this sorceress to give the remaining tribes a fighting chance against Memnon's army, he is ultimately betrayed, his brother is killed, and he is left for dead in the unforgiving desert sun. Now, on a mission of vengeance, Matthias must rely on both his wits and his strength, as well as the aid of a horse thief, a magician, and the sorceress herself to unite the rebels, defeat Memnon, and bring a new era of peace to the people. Prepare to witness the birth of a legend as we discuss the Scorpion King. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am. <laughs> You're insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He did his face. Welcome to the return of The Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monster series. Today we'll be discussing the 2002 Mummy spin-off, The Scorpion King. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host and sorcerer, Monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? Dan, I just want you to know, I make my own destiny. <laughs> As we know, the original Universal Monster movies had established a shared universe with multiple sequels that brought together Dracula, the Frankenstein monster, and the Wolfman. But until now, we've never encountered a spinoff. It wasn't really something that studios did back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. But now, you know, if you have a hit movie and there's a popular side character, next thing to do is give them their own movie, right? So now with the mega success of both The Mummy and The Mummy Returns, and with The Rock, one of the hottest names in professional wrestling at the time, also looking to establish himself as a movie star, Universal saw fit to give their latest monster a movie of its own. But this is not the origin of a monster. It's the origin of a hero, a Conan the Barbarian-style sword-and-sandal adventure film about a last-of-his-kind warrior on a quest for revenge long before he morphs into the ruthless conqueror we know from the opening minutes of The Mummy Returns. Now, this is admittedly a strange sort of movie for us to be covering on The Monsters That Made Us. It's not a horror movie, there are no monsters, but it is connected to The Mummy and that universe, so we felt you know, we should explore this character for better or worse. So hopefully, if you're listening to this, you're excited to join us for this ride, because if the sequels are anything like this first one, I think it will be a lot of fun. So far, we haven't gotten any hate mail since our announcement in our previous episode. So <laughs> I'm optimistic that this will be a good time for everybody. And you know what? The way our schedule works out, you know, because we're doing everything chronologically, if you're not into the Scorpion King and the subsequent movies, you're going to get a Scorpion King like every other episode, right? So like in between, you'll get Wolfman and, and you'll get Dracula and other 
particular things. So it's okay. You can skip these if you don't like them, but I think it's gonna be fun to talk about these. So Mike, I have to ask, what's your history with this first Scorpion King movie? Very little. I had never seen it before, at least not in its entirety. I remember seeing one or two sequences, definitely the fire ants, which we'll talk about later on, a standout moment in the film. But, you know, I think like it wasn't on my radar. I think after The Mummy, I wanted maybe more monsters. I wasn't that interested in going back and figuring out where that scorpion monster came from. It just didn't kind of appeal to me. I was kind of phasing out of my wrestling watching at this point. You know, as soon as like the attitude error was starting to come into full swing is kind of when I was leaving wrestling. I'm still a huge fan and I still was and I followed The Rock a lot. So like, I don't know why I wasn't kind of more into this one. Uh, Admittedly, nowadays, like I'm way more into the sort of D&D campaigns and the uh, sword and sandal stuff and the Conan ripoffs and and, like Cole the Conqueror and like all that stuff. Like it it appeals to me way more now. So like I had a blast watching this. Mm -hmm. I will say... It's got problems, okay, but it also doesn't have problems. Like, I also, I really enjoy a lot of stuff in it. I think for The Rock's first role, it's a good role for him because he doesn't, it's kind of like Arnold. Like, he doesn't really have to talk that much. He can, like, wrestle his way through the movie. He, he, he looks good doing the action. He can be funny when he has to be. Uh, and he's got, like, that appeal, right? He's got sex appeal. And this movie is super sexy. Like, I was not expecting <laughs> that at all. We'll definitely talk about Kelly Who later. Uh, but I did have some disappointments. You know, like you mentioned, there really are no monsters. We don't even get half a scorpion monster. We barely get any scorpion talk. The stuff that's in it scorpion-wise is pretty cryptic. Yeah, for, like, a, a prequel origin story for this, monster we just saw it is almost entirely disconnected from the mummy and the mummy returns right shocking he doesn't really start off like a great guy you know so you can kind of see how he becomes maybe like a power hungry titan of some type you know that like rules the desert one day but the movie does a full-on anti-hero thing with him by the end and he's just like you know i think of him almost like wolverine now where it's like he's got a bad attitude but he's gonna like protect the kid and you know save the girl or whatever like take care of the team he's got his little x-force with him and stuff so we'll get into it more but you know first impressions were like pretty good to be honest with you i I was pretty surprised it's fun i don't remember having ever watched this before i watched for the show it was never really something that i actively was interested in i certainly didn't see it in the theater back in 2002 i was into wrestling as well i was kind of getting at it around that time but i wasn't watching wwf i was watching wcw i was watching monday nitro I knew who The Rock was because a lot of kids I went to school with were fans of WWF and it was in my periphery, but The Rock wasn't this superstar to me, but I certainly knew who he was. Knowing what I know about The Rock now, you know, like he's one of the biggest superstars in the world. I agree with you that this is a sort of perfect debut starring role for him. It sort of is tailored to a lot of his strengths in the ring as a wrestler because The Rock as a character is very charming and charismatic. He's great on a mic microphone and of course he's a pro wrestler so he's very physical and so this movie plays to his strengths in just about every way which is what you want you want to set up your star on the right note and so as many problems as this movie has i don't think that's one of them i think that's actually one of the strengths of this thing you know i'm also a fan of conan the barbarian comics and so those are not 
high art, right? Those are not great literature, but I love this sort of pulpy nonsense of a Conan comic. This is like a, a really great representation of that genre. And I think that while it might not be for everybody, this does kind of work on all those levels. So yeah, I was pleasantly surprised as well. I had a really good time. I mean, I didn't love it, but I think I give it a lot more credit than it's probably due because I'm just a fan of the genre. Yeah, I hear you. And like, we're doing this whole series, you know, so I'm, I'm definitely giving it more attention than I would have if I had like come across it on a streaming service and it's just like, oh, let me check it out. Like I'm watching it with the eyes of the show and stuff. So I'm a little more paying attention to it than I might ordinarily. And I will say this, and like this movie has me actually kind of interested in seeing where this is going to go and all those direct-to-video sequels we're going to watch. So like, I'm getting a little more excited about going through that. But my biggest thing about this, then I'm sure you're going to tell me why, is I don't know why Steven Summers wouldn't do this you know this didn't seem like that big a production like that's the big thing for me that bothers me is like it almost felt like oh an afterthought like we we have to make this movie it's part of the contract but like we're just gonna kind of do it quick and get it out of the way uh and then then go on to like bigger things like van helsing and wolfman and and other kind of stuff like that it almost had that sense of like the studio was like oh darn it we still got to make that movie like okay just get someone to do it i don't know the behind the scenes to this yet but it just watching it felt like these guys were in detention or something, you know, or like they were just like on the bad side of the lot or like, you know, they just gave them the least amount of stuff to get their film made, you know, and I'm just surprised considering we have The Rock, we're trying to showcase him. Uh, we have a lot of other pretty big stars at the time, like Michael Clark Duncan is here, RIP, like that's awesome to see. But it's coming from The Mummy and The Mummy Returns and that whole series. And there's such this big buildup and we're going to expand. And like that all felt like Lord of the Rings. And like this feels like reading The Hobbit. You know, it feels like yeah. such a big pullback from where it felt they were going. I hate to disappoint you, but I don't specifically know why Stephen Summers didn't come back to direct. Like He did write the screenplay and we'll talk about that. I can only suspect that he had kind of done everything he had wanted to do with The Mummy Returns and then was ready to move on to the next thing. Of course, his next movie, and it's going to be our next episode, is Van Helsing. So I have to imagine that once he got done with The Mummy Returns, he was went right into pre-production on Van Helsing, which is why he only wrote the screenplay for this. At least he wrote the screenplay. It's nice to know he was that involved. Comparatively, Van Helsing is ginormous right. compared to this. So I could see now needing full focus and attention on that project aside from here. Yeah, and this is also like a launching point for a new star for The Rock. And so they only had a budget of like $60 million. I think what you were saying is kind of right, that they wanted Steven Summers for the bigger more important project. Van Helsing was a bigger tentpole film than The Scorpion King was. In a lot of ways, Universal was bracing for the, the Scorpion King to not be successful. And so they had Steven Summers write the screenplay just to have his name on it. But I think they wanted him working on Van Helsing instead. That makes sense, you know, and, and you can kind of feel like there's very little digital effects in this you get like we'll have like those snakes later but like i was expecting there to be you know guys with scorpion hands or something right like claw art like the guy at the end i thought he was going to start changing but it's very practical which is fun once you realize like okay we're not going to really get any of that you kind of forget about it at times it feels like maybe one step up from like watching xena but it is still a step up from that and it's still a lot of fun and so uh when we get to van helsing though man that is a cg 
CGI extravaganzas. For sure. That's a good segue. Let's get into the production. So this was produced by Sean Daniel, James Jacks, and Stephen Summers. So they all came back to produce. It was also produced by Kevin Misher. Now, Misher is a sort of newcomer to the team. He had worked his way up from financial analyst for HBO CEO Michael Fuchs to creative executive at TriStar, where he oversaw production of Donnie Brasco and Rudy and other films before becoming the president of production at Universal in 1996, when he was only 33 years old. He had such a knack for selecting what would end up being successful projects that he he worked his way up pretty quickly. He ended up supervising the production of Out of Sight, Aaron Brockovich, Meet the Parents, Fast and the Furious, The Born Identity, and of course, The Mummy. Nice. That's a pretty big hit list. He left Universal in 2001 to start his own production company, Misha Films, where his first project was The Scorpion King. In the director's chair, we've got Chuck Russell. Now, I was unfamiliar with Chuck Russell by name, but when I checked out his filmography, I was surprised to learn that I'm actually very familiar with his work. In fact, you and I have discussed him before on your other show, Third Time's a Charm. His directorial debut was 1987's A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. My favorite Nightmare on Elm Street. Excellent. The Dream Warriors. Oh my gosh. Wow, I know a lot of his films. He's no stranger to genre filmmaking. He also directed the 1988 remake of The Blob and 1994's The Mask, where his work with Industrial Light and Magic are in the film an Academy Award nomination for Best Visual Effects, losing to Forrest Gump. The Blob is amazing, like great practical effects. Same with Elm Street and The Mask with those digital effects, the kind of like groundbreaking digital effects. Like he worked with Arnold. He did Eraser with Arnold. He's got like all the corners needed to kind of create a scorpion king according to him on the blu-ray commentary he really wanted to be a part of this project as soon as he learned that the rock was attached to star that was the draw for him the screenplay like i said was written by stephen summers based on a story by jonathan hales who also contributed to multiple episodes of the adventures of young indiana jones and he co-authored star wars episode two attack of the clones hey all right pretty cool i like some of those old indie episodes especially when he's a little kid and he's running into like tolstoy it's so weird like teddy roosevelt teaches him how to shoot a gun while he's on safari with his parents it's nuts there's no real juicy behind the scenes stuff that i could find but i do have a couple of production notes the story was possibly inspired by the 1995 discovery of a 5400 year old limestone carving known as the scorpion tableau which hmm. depicts the victory of Scorpion II, a.k.a. King Scorpion, in a battle that unified Upper Egypt, which ultimately led to the complete unification of Egypt under Narmer, the first pharaoh. In fact, some believe that Narmer himself might have been King Scorpion. So, okay, I mean, it makes total sense to call it like that even way back then, you know, thousands of years ago, to call yourself Scorpion King, but it just never occurred to me that there would have been a real one. But like, as far as symbolism and, and all that kind of, a scorpion is, is the perfect thing. That's awesome. To me, that smells like Stephen Summers because as broad as these adventure movies are, he does tend to, you know, base a lot of things on reality. Like I remember we talked about in The Mummy, like the Egyptian language that is spoken. You know, nobody knows what Egyptian sounded like, but they had linguists go in and kind of estimate what it might have sounded like. I love that he sort of took this nugget of truth and then spun this whole Scorpion King adventure film out of it. Yeah, it's all you need is like a little grain of an idea. And it's like, oh, yeah, let's take it in this direction. Unlike The Mummy and The Mummy Returns, The Scorpion King was shot almost entirely in Southern California utilizing both Universal's 
sound stages, as well as the Anza Barrigo Desert State Park. The Gomorrah Bazaar, actually, was shot on what is known as Spartacus Square, named, of course, for its use in Spartacus. Awesome. So that's why, like, a lot of it feels so practical. I mean, they were shooting everything in SoCal and, you know, in the old Spartacus set, which I think is pretty awesome. On the commentary, Chuck Russell mentions that, like, at a certain point, like, after the release of this movie, if you took the Universal Studios tour in California, they'd go through that set, and the tour guide would reference that it was used in the Scorpion King and Spartacus, kind of giving it top billing over Spartacus. Here's a more recent movie you might have remembered it from. Have they not used it since Spartacus? When it comes to the visual effects, the opening credit sequence and all the character enhancement, which would include like the fire ants, snakes, and other living things, uh, were done by a company called Centropolis Effects. And all the landscape enhancement, including Memnon's Palace, was handled by Riot Pictures. If there appeared to be a lot of red in the overall production design of this movie, that's because Chuck Russell had the designers utilize a lot of red in order to mitigate some of the violence and keep the action somewhat kid-friendly. His thinking was that with so much red on the screen, you wouldn't miss the blood. Now, Dan, if I may just interject real quick, we're talking production. If I'm not mistaken, at one point, Haywood Hollywood horses were supposed to be in charge of some of the animals here, including uh, Jean Jacket's very first movie. However, they decided to go with camels instead, so... Yes, I love that connection too. Nope. To the film, nope. In case you were wondering about the electric guitar in the film score. Thank you. I'm glad you brought that up because at moments, the movie sounds like an Alan Silvestri movie and at other times, it sounds like a Metallica concert. Yeah, well, that's because Chuck Russell wanted the music to match the rock's general vibe. He asked composer John Debney to incorporate some rock and roll with the more traditional orchestration. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. And have you looked at the soundtrack to this movie? No, actually, I had not had the time. It was certified gold, so it sold fairly well. But Hmm. we've got artists like P.O.D., Creed, Drowning Pool, System of a Down, Godsmack. Uh That was the time. It's one of those soundtracks. That's about it for production notes. We can get right into the cast. We already sort of talked about Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Here he plays Matthias, a.k.a. The Scorpion King. Yeah, I'm not calling him Matthias. I don't know. I barely picked that up. Throughout the movie, I was just like, I Scorpion King. (laughs) This was like his first film as a leading man. And we sort of talked about in the Mummy Returns episode that he ranks among the the highest paid uh, actors in the world. But with this movie, he set a Guinness World Record for the Scorpion King for the highest salary for a first time leading man. Hmm. He made $5.5 million for this one. Wow. Did that turn out to be his quote? Or is his quote or anything? I was like, if I made that much money, I'd retire immediately. I'd be like, I'm good. Yeah, that was the most any first-time leading man had ever made up to that point. Cool. Good for him. I wonder if WWE was part of that deal. Like, no, listen. Like, Vince got in there. He's like, I'm going to get my guy millions. All right. So Vince is uh, listed among the executive producers. That's one of those situations where he really didn't contribute anything, but because they refer to Dwayne The Rock Johnson as The Rock in the credits, uh, WWE owns The Rock, so he was given an executive producer credit. So that's the reason for that, because I was curious to know how much Vince McMahon actually had influence over this one. But it's really just that. It's just so they could call him The Rock. Yeah, he owned the name. The Rock performed many of his own stunts himself, and he learned to use that big-ass sword in only four Mm -hmm. weeks' time. Not bad. How about the archery? Was that really him, too? By comparison, Arnold Schwarzenegger had about a year to prepare for Conan the Barbarian. Nice. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of sword play in this movie, too, and flaming sword play. A lot of sword play. Stephen Brand plays Memnon. This is also Stephen Brand's feature film debut. 
Oh. Prior to this, he spent almost a decade on British television. While The Rock was learning how to act for this one, Stephen Brand was kind of learning how to be an action star. He had since worked steadily on films and in TV, uh, including Hellraiser Revelations, and most recently Saw X, as well as the Teen Wolf series, where he was nominated for Best Guest Starring Role on Television at the Saturn Awards. I've only seen Mayhem, but I don't, I didn't recognize him from anything. So like, it was kind of cool. I was like, oh, who's this guy? Yeah, he looks familiar, but I haven't seen him. And I looked through his credits and none of it rings a bell to me. I've seen Hellraiser Revelations, but like He's also in Hellraiser Judgment. Is he the new pinhead by any chance? Like, what is that? I don't think so. Okay. Fun fact about the role of Memnon. So the role was originally written for Chow Yun-Fat. Oh, cool. Yeah, but his manager vetoed that, claiming that playing a villain would be a betrayal to his fans. Oh, come on. I guess. But I'm a fan of his. I would have been fun to see him do that as a turn. I guess they'll go back to the well eventually and get Jet Li. They will. Yep. To appear in one of these. In fact, it would make more sense to have an actor uh, of Asian descent to play like this, you know, warlord mm-hmm. from the East. I think that was the whole idea. But when he turned it down, they they decided to cast Stephen Brand. So Kelly Hu plays the sorceress. I've also seen her credited as Cassandra. So I'm, I don't believe her name is ever mentioned mm. in the film. But, you know, for the sake of this, we'll just refer to her as the, the sorceress. I didn't know much about her. She's a former fashion model in Miss Teen USA 1985. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and she began her acting career in the late 80s, appearing on Growing Pains, Night Court, and 21 Jump Street. Mm -hmm. But she made her feature film debut in 1989 in Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. I couldn't believe it. I'm going to have to go watch it real soon to to find her in it, but that is incredible like so so many stars come you know come from horror like that series too like there's a bunch of people from like kevin bacon and Corey feldman like she's among the pantheon of uh friday the 13th alum i had only ever seen her in x2 and she was badass in that so i was like ready for her to kick some more ass in this movie and she kind of does should be wearing a little more clothes like i'm not complaining (laughs) i'm not complaining but i'm just saying like give her like a couple more pieces of fabric yeah i watched this like three times um in preparation for this and every Mm -hmm. single time i watched it i just kept thinking like what a trooper she was on set because she spends almost this entire movie in various stages of undress i think in two full sequences she's absolutely totally nude yeah strategically nude with like the hair placement like they do that whole thing and like it's kind of a trope you know like the sorceress is usually more depicted as like erotic i guess like because of magic and sex magic and i'm not making this up like this is you know in comics and there's other women in the movie and they're like barbarians or mothers or you know like it runs the gambit so it's not just like she's the only female in the film right i think it has a little more to do with kind of like the historical tropes of the type of character of the sultry sorceress that she's supposed to be playing this is total like frank frazetta type stuff which in that vein i get it it makes sense it's a logical choice for the genre but it really just gave me pause because this is a a pg-13 movie that a lot of kids went to see Mm -hmm. and there's even a joke at one point in the movie where the kid like throws a coin into a wishing well and like she pops out totally naked yeah it's a horny movie for sure no that's part of the humor it's kind of funny how little regard for 
appropriateness there is in this, you know, and like regarding the censors, that is sort of strange to me that this doesn't have like more restrictions on nudity and things like that. Like she's not completely new, but that they wouldn't ask them to have her covered up more because that is like their main gripe with stuff. Like the violence, I understand. It's like the sex and things like that, that, mm-hmm. that like the censors and the MPAA usually have a problem with for that stuff to kind of sneak through and for there to be like people getting beheaded and arms chopped off, bow and arrowed out of windows and shit. And like it's wild, the type of violence that, I mean, it opens with like someone getting stabbed in the face or something. It's a really shocking opening moment in this movie yeah it is kind of crazy it's like slipped through the cracks yeah after the scorpion king she appeared in cradle to the grave and like you mentioned x2 she played lady deathstrike in that she's still working today doing a lot of films and tv shows she's been on the vampire diaries arrow she did a voice on uh, teenage mutant ninja turtles that's pretty cool Grant Heslov plays Arpeed, the horse thief Grant Heslov uh, best friend to notorious hollywood prankster george clooney Yes. They're like Ben and Matt. It's really cool to read up on. I didn't know that until I started researching this episode. He's credited as as Arpeed. I don't remember his name ever being mentioned. Like this movie has all these characters with names that I never hear. And it's not just even that. Like you're going to have to hold my hand through the desert at some points because like it just goes left and right and, and wherever it wants to go at times. I'm not surprised that we don't learn names at all because half the time I don't know where we're going. Fair enough. So Heslov is a pretty wonderful character actor from film and television. He began in the early 80s, but he really hit his stride in the mid-90s, where he appeared in True Lies, Congo, Black Sheep, The Birdcage, Dante's Peak, and Enemy of the State all consecutively. And then after The Scorpion King, he officially got into writing and producing when he formed Smokehouse Pictures with George Clooney. And as a result, he's collaborated with Clooney on a number of projects, including Good Night and Good Luck, for which he received an Academy Award nomination. And he won the Academy Award for Best Picture for Argo. This guy was all over the 90s. Like, it's like every week you go to the movie and he'd pop up somewhere. He's in Congo. He's in True Lies. Like, he's just all over the place. And it's really fun to see. He is most recognized recognizable to me from his role in the birdcage i fucking love that movie bernard hill plays phylos memnon's like magician bernard hill is a prolific english character actor many will know him from his work as captain smith in titanic and of course theoden the king of rohan in the lord of the rings trilogy look at that he was double dipping because we mentioned lord of the rings so much last time as far as like them trying to like expand this stuff and like here he is they're like we'll even get some lord of the rings guys to be in this well this was like right around that time two towers was the same year right they had a lot of this film before those movies came out right i heard they were like filming those movies for years and then they came out i could be wrong as well i imagine he was cast more on his strength from like other stuff probably i'm sure titanic had some influence over that by some coincidence he ended up doing the scorpion king and lord of the rings all in the same year it could have been his agent where he was like hey you were just doing some magic stuff you want to be like a magic dude in this movie because he had done titanic and the lord of the rings he is the only actor to have appeared in more than one film that won 11 academy awards so oh wow It's a nice feather in his cap. That's a crazy statistic. 
isn't it? It sort of reminds me of John Cazell. You know, he did like five movies and they were all Best Picture nominees. So yeah, that's also pretty cool. Next is Michael Clark Duncan. We've we sort of talked about him already. Uh, he plays Balthazar in this. Like The Rock, Michael Clark Duncan originally had aspirations of being a professional athlete, even trying out for his hometown Chicago Bears. But instead, he chose to pursue acting after his mom refused to let him play football for fear that he would get injured. After moving to L.A., as he was seeking acting and modeling work, he found that his six foot five, 315 pound frame could help him earn money as a bodyguard. And so while he was trying to get cast in movies and TV shows, he worked for Will Smith, Martin Lawrence, Jamie Foxx, LL Cool J, and the Notorious B.I.G. Wow. And then ultimately left the personal protection business after Biggie was killed in 1997. Oh, wow. I didn't know any of that. I didn't know he was a bodyguard for those dudes. I expected when we came into this season, like we're going to be talking about a lot of actors that are still fresh in our minds or are still very active today. And that I wouldn't be spending so much time like talking about who they are. But I keep finding really cool stuff about a lot of these actors. So yeah, we're still just doing the same same thing we were doing uh, with the actors from the 30s and 40s. Yeah, I remember first seeing him, I think, in Armageddon. And I was just like, who is this guy? He's hilarious. And he's humongous. And then Kingpin and Daredevil and Green Mile and all that. He was always like a great presence on the screen. You know, that's a big miss. I miss him a lot big loss. He got that Armageddon role after two performances. They were like small roles. He played a bouncer in both movies. He was in Bullworth and A Night at the Roxbury. Hmm. He was credited as Big Mike Duncan. And then of course that led to Armageddon and then Armageddon led to The Green Mile, which earned an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. That's basically his career defining performance, I would say. Such a good, amazing voice. You could just listen to him like read anything, read the phone book or something. Yeah, I really miss him. I'm sure most of our listeners know that yeah, he passed away of a heart attack in 2012. doesn't feel that long. So Peter Fancinelli plays Takmet, who, again, another character whose name I don't think we ever hear. He is the dude who betrays Matthias. He kills his father and then betrays Matthias and his brother and all that. So that's who that is, Peter Fascinelli. He's from some stuff on the network. They cover quite often the, the Twilight series of films. He plays Dr. Daddy. Yes, he is Dr. Carlisle Cullen in Twilight. He also played Mike Dexter in the 1999 film Can't Hardly Wait. I have a feeling like Hugh Jackman auditioned for this, you know, because they're like, damn it, we lost Hugh to X-Men. Like, get us a Hugh Jackman lookalike. I'm sure you're going to mention Roger Reese next, the guy who plays his king father, King Ferron. But like, he looks like King Conan. Yes. He looks like old Conan is depicted, you know, with those scraggly beard and the heavy crown and the giant sword. Ralph Muller plays Thorak. Thorak, I know, he is the soldier who is sent out to go find the sorceress and Matthias out in the desert when they have that big fight scene in the dust storm. I mention him because his history is somewhat interesting. He was a former competitive bodybuilder and at six foot, six inches, 288 pounds, one of the tallest bodybuilding champions of all time. He made his debut in 1989 Cyborg and appeared in Universal Soldier in 1992. But I recognized him from Gladiator. Yeah. Weird thing. It, it seems that he played Conan the Barbarian in, in the legendary Conan the Adventurer series from 1997 to 1998. 
There it is. Branscombe Richmond plays Jessup, Matthias's brother, who is a small role. He's I think he's in the opening sequence and then dies, what, like 20 minutes into the movie. He's a prolific Hawaiian actor who began his career in 1976, continues oh. to work in film and television. His most well-known role is probably Bobby Sixkiller in the 1990s TV series Renegade. This is really just for me. He did play Klingon Gunner number two in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, which we also talked about on Third Time's a Charm. All right. Roger Reese, you mentioned, plays King Farron. Didn't have anything super interesting about him, but Sherry Howard plays Queen Isis. She wears many hats. She has done some acting. She continues to do some acting, but she's mostly known for being an Olympic runner, specializing in the 400 meter relay, uh, in which she won gold in 1984 and silver in 1988. There's all these like separate tribes, right? She is the leader of the one tribe. She's the black woman with awesome hair. Yeah, she's like the woman king. Yeah. So the Scorpion King opened at number one at the box office, succeeding the Matrix for the largest April opening weekend at the time. Whoa, that's wild. I mean, who knew? No one knew the Matrix yet. Right, that had legs that the Scorpion King did not have. But the Scorpion King didn't do too bad. It earned a total worldwide gross of more than $178 million compared to its $60 million budget. So it was a modest success by today's standards. And so far, the Scorpion King has spawned one prequel and three sequels, all of which we will get to. Wait a second. Hold on a minute. There's a prequel? One of these, it's going to be a prequel? Yeah, so the Scorpion King 2 is a prequel to this. Okay, I'm sorry. Just trying to process that in real time. I'll just put that in the back of my mind for now. Okay, we'll get there. It also spawned two video games. And as of this recording, per The Hollywood Reporter, Universal is currently developing a modern-day Scorpion King reboot from Academy Award-winning screenwriter Jonathan Herman, which will be produced by Dwayne Johnson and Danny and Hiram Garcia. Are you telling me? Universal's like, you know what? Scorpion King, we created it. It's on the table. We're bringing that back with the mummy and the invisible man and Dracula and everybody. Like, that is wild. So that report, I believe, came out in um, the late teens. That's still not that long ago for it to not be in some sort of production loop of some kind. The original announcement was made in November of 2020. There we go. It is, yeah, I mean... As far as I know, this thing's going forward. It would be so wild if The Rock came back to play the Scorpion King and he was like just like a modern day businessman and he unlocks like the power of the Scorpion King. (laughs) How is this going to work in modern day? I don't know. And we don't know that The Rock will be starring in it. We know he is definitely producing it. We'll have to keep an eye out for that. It's so funny how they're like, he counts. He counts. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same sort of logic we used, right? He counts. Counts enough. That's all I got for the behind the scenes stuff. We can get into the movie. One of the great things about this movie is that it doesn't really overcomplicate too much. The story is pretty simplistic. And even still, I got a little lost. I will say before we get started, I love how it's like 90 minutes, but I heard a rumor that this movie was only like 70 minutes for the first cut and they had yeah. to like run back out and shoot a bunch more stuff yeah i think the original runtime was around 70 to 75 minutes something like that and like i don't know maybe the desert sequence in the cave might have been an insert extra shoot or something but like otherwise i don't really feel that i actually like the brisk pace and i felt that it moved along pretty quickly it does keep moving right this thing doesn't really slow down too much we're just coming off the mummy returns we sort of talked about how that was an exercise in like excessive action non-stop full throttle action this finds a way to like 
keep things moving pretty quickly, but without feeling exhausting. And I think part of that has to do with the runtime by keeping it 90 minutes. I know Chuck Russell really wanted to emphasize Matthias's wit over his brute strength. That allows for like sort of a, a balance of, you know, how Matthias deals with his problems. I think it's a really solid blend of action and humor. So really enjoy this. So it opens with this horde who are celebrating victory. They're in what looks like a big, what would you call that? It's like a giant hut almost. Yeah. Or something. Like, like, it like, almost a, like somewhere Beowulf would hang out. Like a big teepee kind of structure. But they're in the snow, so they almost feel like Vikings. Yes. He's listing off like all these different people that they've conquered. In the same breath, he rattles off like the Babylonians and the Mesopotamians, who are the same people. <laughs> <laughs> like he's he's really excited for the opportunity to finally kill an Akkadian. And we see who we will discover is Matthias's brother, Jessup, sort of strapped to this cross. So the movie begins with the rescue of Jessup. Uh, Matthias like drops in from the ceiling. There's a whole fight sequence. Of course, he saves his brother yeah apparently these guys are endangered as well there's only like three to five of these dudes left in the entire tribe like that's their entire crew so they're also gloating about that like we captured one of like the fiercest warriors on the planet and everything and then in bursts the rock who's like is it his older brother does he make a joke or he's like i'm always saving your dumb brother the scene ends with him saying you know you're lucky you're my brother that's it i love that the rock's first line in, in a starring role is boo yeah, right. He like walks in and there's fire behind him and he just looks up and goes boo. The whole place like erupts in panic when he does that and like people go running all over the place. They start attacking him. I mean, he's walking in there to like start a fight. He's not being subtle at all. But I thought that was interesting. You know, I mean, there's some context there. The Rock is like the last of his kind. That's sort of familiar territory. It reminds me of like Vin Diesel's character in uh, Near Dark, the last of his kind. Oh, yep. Like cruise up with a bunch of people. I like that. After Matthias saves his brother, we get like the opening credits we get the narrator. We don't have Ardith Bay this time. We have a uh, like a disembodied voice. I don't think it's a character in the movie. I thought it might be the magician, like the wizard dude later. The basic setup is that there's been this like horde coming in from the east led by Memnon. And essentially their leader is decided by like the fiercest warrior, right? And Memnon has been able to defeat all of his enemies. And the reason he's able to do that is because he has this sorceress as a captive. We will learn later on in the movie that she's essentially been his captive since childhood and she has uh, the ability to see into the future and know the outcome of his battle so he's really yeah. just gonna take on groups that he knows he can defeat yeah that's the thing it's because i'm watching the movie and i'm like oh right like he's not a great warrior at all he's cheating yeah he has the sorceress tell him everything there's also kind of like i'm getting at the start of this like a like a big he-man vibe you know Sure. I'm getting those sort of battle lines being drawn in the sand where we have the rock as He-Man and this guy's like whoever Skeletor was, uh, Eldor or whatever. I think he was someone. Before he got his face melted off and this is like the sorceress and everything. And I could get down. That's all what I'm saying is like I... I like this kind of stuff. Like it's goofy yes. and it's very broad, but it got me. Like I'm digging it. He is a legitimately great swordsman. Like that's sort of his thing, you know, so he, he can do that. 
he's no pushover. Like he still has the balls to like run out on the battlefield and like kick ass and stuff, you know, but he's still got like the edge. Yeah. So that inspires his men, you know, his army grows bigger with each city they conquer. We're now down to like the last few tribes left. They are kind of known as like the rebels of the region to Memnon. We have several different tribes. One's led by Balthazar. One's led by uh, Queen Isis. Of course, we've got our three remaining Akkadians. And they all, I think, fall under the jurisdiction of King Pharaoh. Yeah. These tribes don't want to take on Memnon because they're afraid they're going to lose, but they know that he's got this sorcerer. And so the Pharaoh hires the Akkadians to go assassinate the sorceress that they will at least have, I guess, a fighting chance against Memnon and his forces. That's the best plan. You take her out, then he can't foretell the future and he don't know how like the battle's going to end, if he's going to win or not, you know? So that's it. Like he loses his trump card. That's actually a really good plan and it definitely should have worked. And I like King Faron. He looks like Lord of the Rings or old King Conan here and out in the desert. It's, it's a lot of fun. And yeah, and I'm not expecting what's going to happen to happen to the extent that it happens. I was like, all right, cool. Like they'll go, they'll kill the sorcerer. They're probably going to like run into somebody after that, you know, while they're escaping and then they're going to be on the run. Like I'm good with this setup. That night, Matthias and the other two Akkadians uh, infiltrate the the camp, the nearby uh, camp of, of Memnon's forces. This is where we are introduced to the horse thief hanging upside down over a fire. Like it's very uh, silly and cartoony, but it kind of works. That's Grant Heslov, right? That's what they yes. call him the whole movie, horse thief, not Arpid. This is like the beginning of like a whole action sequence. I love that Matthias has this camel. First of all, I want to address the camel. I don't think the camel has a name, but it's like all these great pulp heroes that we know. They all kind of have their animal companion, like Zorro had Tornado, and the Phantom had had several. He had a horse and a wolf. And so I love that Matthias has his camel. There's a great relationship with camels. So he zip lines into Memnon's camp, which is really fun. There's a whole fight sequence, which results in his brother being captured. And as Matthias is sneaking in to save his brother again, he is distracted by the sorceress. He encounters mm-hmm. her. I don't think he realizes up until this point that this sorcerer is a sorceress, right? He's sort of captivated right. by her beauty. Yes, gorgeous sorceress. <laughs> and that distraction is enough for him to sort of get restrained. Memnon basically kills his brother in front of him, but she saves yeah. Matthias's life. For some reason, we don't know. She lies, right? I think I think that's pretty cool. This sequence is nuts. Like a lot kind of happens. Like he bursts in and sees her and she's like getting dressed or something and it's like shockingly beautiful. It's like a record scratch. It's like, Rrr. and then they come in with his brother. Don't they like murk him right in front of him or something? And then he's like, you're the last of your kind now. You're, you're like an endangered species boy. Yes. And then she's like, I'm sorry if you were double crossed. And Takmet comes in with the head of his father. Yes. Right. And he's like, oh, I've got my dad's head here. He's like, look, we've double crossed everybody. Like, I'm down with Mennog. That's what's up. There's a lot going on in this little tent here tonight, which is kind of crazy. I didn't realize just how much occurs until I wrote it all down. Sometimes I feel like the sorceress is lying to save her own ass, right? And it's like she probably had the vision of the rock saving her at one point and was like, 
okay, I got to do what I can to kind of line up these cards right and make sure everything falls into place. And so when he shows up, like, I got to have this story where, like, I'll tell the dude I had this vision and he'll believe me because every other time it's worked out, but this time it'll kind of be bullshit, you know? And so, like, she's saving the rock to rescue her later. The story she tells is that Memnon can't kill Matthias with his own hands or any hand that he commands or else he himself will be defeated in battle or some shit. And we know that the Scorpion King dies by the hands of Rick in the future with the Spear Destiny, you know, <laughs> in, in, in the Oasis of Magic. So, like, we know he's not going to die. Like, maybe you think she saw that? That would have been crazy. I think she sees some of it because at the end, she kind of gives him, like, yeah, peace never lasts or, like, even kingdoms go away eventually and kind of, like, gives this, like, cold wink to the audience as if, like, you know what's going to happen. Yeah, I don't know if she sees it yet. She reveals later that she knows that he is like destined to be this great hero who will bring peace to the people. I had one super simple fix and I would have been happy the rest of the movie if Mennon called himself Scorpion King. You know, he plays with them at one point, but like because then at the end when the rock and the spoilers will get, you know, but like when the rock becomes the king at the end by killing him, then it makes sense that he's Scorpion King now. Like it's by kind of like the default. It's like when you kill Santa, you become him when you put the coat on. Yeah. He doesn't call himself Scorpion King, but his palace does utilize Scorpion iconography. There's a big gold scorpion on that palace. Yeah. You know, he is on some level embracing this sort of scorpion thing, but it's not played up as much as you would think it would be in a movie called The Scorpion King. That would have been a cool story-wise moment. Be like, oh, it's called The Scorpion King, but like, it's not The Rock that's a scorpion king. Like, oh, how's this, you know, like, how does the name get to him? Now faced with the inability to kill Matthias, himself or have him killed Memnon has to come up with a creative solution to this problem and what he decides to do is bury Matthias up to his neck in the desert right outside some fire ant hills uh, along with the horse thief and I think this sequence is pretty successful way more successful than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull oh yeah fire ant sequence uh, this was fun this was cool you know he's got the horse thief is like gonna escape and blows the fire and he does the fireball out of his mouth yeah i don't entirely understand how arpeed escapes from his hole in the dirt they don't really ever explain that there's a lot of that because arpeed will like sort of go down like dig down somehow and then just appear on the cliff and then he takes out the guard by pushing him into the fire ants and then the rock's like help me help me and he's like all right i'll help you and then we just cut to them walking along the entire how did he get out how did, how long did that take doesn't matter we're just gonna move on and i was like we're just gonna keep going i really enjoy that sequence the the, the comedic interplay between the rock and grant Heslov is really fun uh, i love the rock killing ants with his face he, he like eats one and spits it out yeah he smushes one with his chin good effects yeah i, I thought they did a solid job with the fire ants so he makes a vow to not kill Arpeed and share any wealth and treasure, right? I think that's sort of the, the bargain. And so oh, yeah, yeah. because Acadians, when they make an oath, they have to keep it. And so Arpeed uh, helps him. And then they end up heading into uh, Gamora. Yeah, this, this was wild that this is like the Gamora of like Sodom and Gamora. 
Yes. PG-13 and everything. I don't know. There's just a lot of connotation about, you know, it just makes the mind go to places to be like, what are we going to see here? Like, what, what are they going to push? I don't know. This is supposed to be like the good city, right? I guess compared to Sodom. I don't know how. No, that no, they were, they were both wicked cities. Okay. It's just weird that, that we would use this name and just make up a name. Well, I think they wanted to place it in history somewhere. And Gomorrah is like famously this like wicked city where all sorts of bad things happen. And so I guess it makes sense to have your King Memnon hole up there. I guess so. But we know he wasn't there like in real life, maybe, right? right? So right. like, it's just a little strange. It makes more sense in The Mummy for some reason than it does in this. Uh, I, I can't put my finger on it. It doesn't really bother me all that much, but I can understand your point. We do get a little scene with Memnon and his sorceress. We learn a couple things. It's not a huge oh, scene, yeah. but we understand that Memnon's point of view is that like all great tyrants and dictators, he believes he is bringing order to chaos and that what he's doing is good for the region. Yep. She disagrees in so many words. We also learn about the fine print in the sorcerer king relationship that if he were to basically have sex with her, she will lose her power of foresight. Well, okay. So I was a little confused about this because I feel like at the end, if I can just jump down real quick she explained that that was like bullshit in the first place because it's just a way to stop your captor from sleeping with you correct right she's like it's just what we would tell them so that we didn't get you know sexually abused all the time (laughs) if you did that we lose our power but i i thought it was like if she did that she wouldn't be able to tell his future because later she'll sleep with the rock and it feels like she can't tell what's going to happen with him but she can still tell what's going on otherwise i was a little confused by that if she just couldn't tell the future entirely or she couldn't tell that person's future but in the end it turns out that like that was just a lie she could still tell the future no matter what i think that her ability independent of any of that is not a hundred percent accurate she can't always tell you with a hundred percent certainty what's going to happen and i think in that moment with the rock she sees a possible future okay so i think that's what's happening there and so i don't know that it's necessarily related to this whole sex clause i love that it ends up kind of being bullshit by the end but by this point in the movie we believe it to be totally true. So now Matthias and the horse thief have arrived in Gomorrah. There's a really fun sequence where like some street urchins, these kids steal Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of jewels from Matthias. And there's a whole chase sequence. It's very cute. They find the kid like hiding in a basket. It's very Indiana Jones. Man, they hit all the notes of these kinds of adventure films where or action films of the time where it's like, okay, he's got like the weakling sidekick. Yep. Right. So like it makes him more of a buff boy. He's got the little kid. All right. So it's like, all right, he's endearing. Like he's get he's a protector. Right. He's going to get like the super attractive lady and he's like a straight guy. So like for him, that's like the pinnacle. And pretty soon we're also going to double down on the magic. We're going to get like a wizard too. Yep. Which is so confusing because he's not like a wizard. He's more like an alchemist. Yes. And all he can really do is make gunpowder. He's got his family or something that he's kind of cobbled together here. His 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 final fantasy party. We'll take this a little bit at a time, I think. Uh, so when he finally finds this kid, he he decides to 
you know, put him to use. And he goes, how would you like to earn this? You know, one of these jewels. And so the kid gets him into the palace. There's a really fun exchange where they're like sneaking down this hallway. They hear some guards and Matthias looks at the kid and goes, all right, you kill half, I'll kill half. The kid just looks at him like, dude, I'm a child. (laughs) Matthias goes, all right, I'll kill them all. You know, Matthias was killing adults when he was that age. And then we meet Phylos. They sort of take refuge sort of like a shortcut or something they like go through the palace wall and like burst in on him well they're trying to escape from those guards oh that's it yeah they run into his lab which is like an ancient frankenstein lab of sorts it's got all these different gadgets yeah so we meet philos and then the the scene in the courtyard happens oh right yeah he's like where's this dude and he's like in the courtyard and we we cut to the courtyard like tournament almost yes and this was the point in the movie where i was getting kind of like i was like man i almost wish this took place in like a mad max future because i was getting like weird fist of the north star vibes from this particular sequence for some reason i i keep following in this thing even though I, I don't quite understand like where it's gonna go or what's happening or anything but it, it, it keeps me entertained i mean it's not technically an action sequence but you know memnon is training with his swords and like he's really kicking ass right like we really get to see him yeah. uh full force out in that training yard and then we get to see he has the ability to like catch an arrow in the middle like in mid oh that's right he does like the whole ozymandias thing so he's like fucking awesome right as, to, as, a, as, a, as a fighter the child that was with matthias is caught at this point they've separated right he gets his payment for getting him into the palace but then matthias is like ready to like launch an arrow into memnon when this kid gets pulled out and they're going to cut his arm off because that's how you deal with thieves in ancient gamora so there's a whole situation where matthias has to now save this child instead of killing memnon he uh is being pursued by guards this is where he gets back into phylos's lab right. launches himself with the catapult which is awesome he ends up landing into what just happens to be memnon's harem he gets up he gives the eyebrow the eyebrow yes it's the only time he does anything like the specifically like the rock they let him do the eyebrow which is pretty awesome and then uh of course the prostitutes in the harem strip him of all his gear as the guards burst through the door that was fun like he has to fight with no weapons for a minute and try and get more weapons yeah i actually really liked him not always having a sword on him you know they mixed up the actions Mm -hmm. so he's doing some sword fighting and then he's doing some hand-to-hand combat and then maybe my favorite bit of the scene he straight up steals the gong gag from indiana jones and the temple of doom he pulls the gong down and like rolls it across the room runs alongside of it yep that's awesome and then uh then he leaps out of the building crashes through into the sorceress's bath house crashes in on her having a bath right this is where I was like, how do we not see more of Kelly Who? This is like the most strategic nudity I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. With so much movement, I don't know how they accomplished it, but hats off to him. Yeah, because he's going to like pick her up and throw her around and she's going to be running around and she's completely naked and soaking wet. And she just has like her very long hair as clothing, kind of like yeah. covering up just, you know, her private parts it is kind of crazy to watch and be like oh this is i can't believe they got away with this yeah it's insane but also impressive they escape through the plumbing oh my god which can like i just can't imagine the smell of that going through ancient gamoran plumbing 
Capture me instead. It's not human waste. It's just bathwater. In the movie, we only see bathwater. But, you know, like in reality and everything, they have to tone tone that down. They're not going to show, like, pieces of waste floating by her or anything like that. But, like, I guess I shouldn't have, but I was using my imagination. I was like, that's way worse than they're allowed to depict. They ultimately do escape. Matthias takes the sorceress hostage, and the trio are reunited as they head out into what is known as the Valley of the Dead which um, the horse thief Arpede is very concerned because they call it the Valley of the Dead for a reason, but also he doesn't want to be left behind. But the Rock's not concerned because he's like, that's where I'm from, right? Didn't he say something like his home is there? That makes sense. He's from the Valley of the Dead. We check in with Memnon again. His armies are starting to lose a little bit of faith because the sorceress has vanished and, you know, they don't really believe they can win without her. This is where he starts tipping arrows with scorpion venom, right? So now the scorpions are really coming into play. He sends his men out to find them and then use the arrows to kill Matthias. So the sorceress does try to escape, not successful, but the scene is important because this is where we learn that she's been a captive since childhood and that the reason that she lied back at the beginning of the movie is that you know she believed that Matthias would, would eventually rescue her. So that's where we learn that. Now we get to Thorak and his men have caught up and Matthias uses that really cool uh, like sort of telescope with the crystal. I've never seen anything like that before. So I thought that was really neat. Uh, Yeah, because like that's just like completely made up for the movie. Like we need more of that kind of stuff for the movie, you know, like I was almost hoping that the sorceress would cast some kind of spell of protection or, or anything or like they would upgrade their weapons. At this point in the movie, when they're like really questing and they're together and they're like on the run and or whatever they're doing i was just hoping like we're gonna get a pretty fun fight sequence with the sandstorm like in that cave it would have been cool if he kind of came across like a treasure chest with something valuable in it that would help them win the day oh i think it would have been cool if he while he was in phylos's workshop take a couple things you know like phylos could have been the cue of this movie just supplying interesting gadgets and things it's not gonna kill it for me or anything but it's just like oh you know i just when he pops out that spyglass and moves the crystal around and stuff. I was like, that's fun. That's sort of the fun stuff that I thought we'd see a little more of, of just like movie magic kind of stuff. Right. So now Matthias prepares to attack these men. He sees the approaching sandstorm behind them that they are not aware of. He slips on this really cool, like protective eyewear, this like primitive eye protection. Oh yeah, his helmet. And rides out, just him and his camel, just riding out against like what, like 10 guys on horseback? But it's not just him and his camel because it's him, his camel, and his sandstorm. This sandstorm moves so fast. It's like the sun coming up in The Mummy Returns. Like it's just, a, it's just a little too fast. It's not the greatest, but like I like the concept behind it. You know, the idea that like he knows the desert so well, even... The elements are on his side. Yeah. There's a fight scene in the sandstorm that that moves into a nearby cave. Matthias heads in there first. And for like a couple minutes, the movie kind of becomes a horror movie in a sense. Yeah, right? That's why I felt like I said earlier, this feels like the reshoots or like the extra shooting thing. Like they went and they put this whole sequence together in the cave. And they're like, yeah, let's make it more sneaky and horror. We got the um, quicksand right yep, that, yep that's really fun and then he's like taking them out one by one 
It's kind of like a role reversal where, you know, the bad guys are getting picked off, right? Yeah. And Matthias is in the shadows like a xenomorph. Really is. Yeah, it's a really cool sequence. He manages to pick them off one at a time. But of course, he doesn't come out of it unscathed. Thorak does manage to pierce him with that tipped arrow, which will kill him. But the sorceress uses her magic to save him. Basically, we talked about the Green Mile and Michael Clark Duncan earlier. You know, she kind of does that same thing where she sucks out the bad stuff and saves his life. But as a result, kind of gets a little bit sick herself. I mean, she lives. She's okay, but... Yeah, that's cool, though, that we get to see she has other magic abilities. Like, she doesn't just tell the future. Like, she can do this healing spell. And, like, who knows what else? I wish she had kind of, like, shot lightning at the end of the movie or Mm. did something, you know? But, I mean, she could talk to animals. Like, she talks to that camel at one point and gives him instructions. (laughs) Yeah, you know, like, in hindsight, as for a sorceress, I kind of wish she had more powers. You know, like, she's got a very limited skill set. We just don't know what else she can do. I'm sure she can do tons of stuff but we only get to see her do like one or two things right and i'm sure it comes down to the 60 million dollar budget there could be a scene there would have been a fun scene like when they you know maybe the next night when um they're around a campfire and arpin's like so like i'm not just a horse thief like i could do this i'm a plumber like i can (laughs) fix that i'm a musician and she can be like well you know i have other powers too and she can just like list off a whole list of powers you know like i can turn day to night i can you know teleport like all this stuff but it's really exhausting and only when i need to right she does say something important in this scene she says that the blood of the scorpion will always flow through his veins setting up a little bit of foreshadowing there yeah but why this is the only time she's mentioned that if he was from the scorpion tribe which memnon sort of co-opted right like imagine that and that's why they're like extinct and shit is because he kind of decimated the old version and is like you know rebranding it as his uh it's like i'm taking the scorpion logo and you guys are all dead now you know so like i wish it was more streamlined or something like i you know like as as sort of simple as it is i've got too many questions (laughs) (laughs) i think you're asking for more of this movie than it's capable of giving you but it wants me to believe that the rock has scorpion blood running through his veins he does now because of the scorpion venom on the on the arrow tip is that what that's what she's talking about yeah then that's my bad she pulled the venom out you know the lethal element but you know he will always have scorpion blood running through his veins because like how cool if like he got shot with the arrow and she was like oh you know like i healed you but i noticed you would have like healed yourself because you've got scorpion you've already got the scorpion blood and you passed down from like your legacy sort of like how rick o'connell was like a surprise magi revealed later at a convenient time kind of but not like secret like it's stuff the rock knew but never really felt like he was the one but kelly hugh comes along and is like oh you've got this is what i thought right but the movie is like oh you got shot with scorpion venom now you have scorpion venom or blood in your system that's all it was saying i thought it was trying to be a little more sort of like opening up the lore of what was you know, to come. I thought it was trying to like hint at a backstory, but it was literally saying like, you now have scorpion blood in you because you got shot with the scorpion blood tipped arrow. (laughs) You might've been giving it more credit than it deserved. Well, I'm at that point in the movie where I'm like, I'm having fun and I want to know more. So I'm like expanding it in my brain. Okay. So she also reveals that Matthias, you know, she believes he's going to be the one who will save all these people, not just save her, but you know, he he is destined to go on and be this great ruler that will bring peace. 
I wondered, is that how far she can see? Or like, does she know and want to be like, you know what? It's better to have that time of peace for what it's worth, even if it's going to get like really bad after that to the point where he's going to become a monster. You know, should she have just kind of like taken him out in his sleep one night? Like, (laughs) just like solved a lot. I mean, maybe you got to wait until he takes out Memnon at least. But that's why I want to see what's up with these sequels. I got to see how he becomes so evil again. So now at this point, Matthias takes a piece of thorax some pendant he's wearing around his neck and sends it back by falcon to memnon as a message that he killed thorak and his men memnon saves face lies says everything's fine but that he also plans to begin the attack against the remaining rebels in the area he's just gonna like go hard now right he's got a fight to win and whether he's got this sorceress or not shock and awe is his plan yes on their way back to gamora matthias and everybody they all encounter phylos out in the desert experimenting with his fireworks He's just out there in the middle of the nowhere. It felt like he was prisoner of some kind, right? Like I felt like he was under surveillance, but like, no, he's just like wandering the desert, doing experiments, blowing shit up. Well, I think on some level, he is a subject of King Memnon, but like he has some autonomy, it seems like. He's not number one in Memnon's mind right now, so he can get away with taking an afternoon out in the desert without... Uh, supervision i just gotta say like if my sorceress went missing i'd be calling on my wizard like a lot you know (laughs) i'd be like where is that guy (laughs) right like he yeah because he can create weapons he can create all these uh, other tools that could potentially help and who knows if he can't tell some kind of future too or at least like bullshit his way through it so around this time they are all taken captive by balthazar Yeah, he's finally back. He's been gone for like an hour. And he knows what the original task at hand was. It was, we had to kill that sorceress. To quote the dude here, some new shit has come to light. (laughs) And Matthias knows, like, she's not the one they need to kill. Rathasar, like, he's not up to date on all the new shit. He kind of gives, like, a little, like, unite them all kind of speech, right? And basically, everyone just wants to fight. That's how I feel about this movie. You know, everyone's just, like, waiting around, like, just tell me who I should be fighting and i'm good that's who a leader should be and they like look at the rock and he's like we're all gonna band together and fight memnon because he's an asshole he first says anybody who touches this woman's gonna have to go through me before they unite all of these remaining tribes there's a really actually pretty sick fight scene between matthias and balthazar Oh, yeah. And he spares them. Yeah. I love that it starts with their swords breaking. Like, these guys are so uh-huh. strong that the first swing of the sword, both swords break. And so now it's just a slugfest through the camp. And I gotta be honest. Like, I know this is The Rock's movie, okay? Yeah. But Michael Clark Duncan could definitely be this, could have been the Scorpion King. T- like, that's why sure. I watch these guys. It's like they're even, you know? I'm like, it could have been, it's like a coin toss to me. Yeah, there's a lot of muscle. These guys are huge. I was expecting the rock to give him the rock bottom or, or or something but we don't get that far really no but it is a really fun fight sequence and yeah i really enjoy that so once matthias has defeated balthazar in hand-to-hand combat he does manage to convince everyone you know not to kill the sorceress who the real enemy is and that they can band together and defeat him as one that evening that's when the sorceress has that vision that memnon will track them back to that encampment and kill everyone yeah so she has she has a very short-sighted kind of foretelling power so i'm convinced she can't tell years and years into the future she can just kind of tell like maybe days 
which has to be frustrating when you're Memnon and you're like getting ready for battle and you know you're not sure like until like the day before if you're going to go through with it or not because you can't tell if you're going to win yet (laughs) (laughs) imagine being like in Memnon's army like you have to be ready at all times yeah and you got to be like crossing your fingers be like I hope she sees defeat and we could all go home today (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah we we know that this is not necessarily what will happen it is sort of a a possible Mm -hmm. future for them but Matthias is very much a guy who believes he will make his own destiny. In fact, he says that earlier, uh, like a few seconds yep. prior. This is when they have sex. I guess he's not concerned with her ability to tell the future. He doesn't know about that rule, though. Only Memnon mentions that. Like, I don't think he's aware that that's a loophole or whatever you got a clause in, in this. Okay, so that's something that I'm a little bit confused about. I, I wasn't able to track that when I was taking my notes. At some point, I think he learns about that because he questions it at the end, but I'm not entirely sure. I thought it was in this scene. I thought that was the writers getting confused at the very end and trying to end on like some kind of joke. I was like, how does he know that? I was like, why does he mention that? Yeah, it's entirely possible it never comes up in a scene he is in. And then we as the audience are the only ones who know that. So, I mean, that's fine. That's why it's a movie, you know, (laughs) movies allowed to do that kind of weird stuff and like break reality and stuff. So that evening, as Matthias is sleeping, the sorceress decides she's going to take his camel and ride back to Gamora alone. And following morning, he wakes up by himself. Balthazar and the remaining tribes have all banded together. So you think she went back to be like a distraction or like an inside man kind of situation where it's like, I'll go in there, I'll do, I'll pass the snake test, I'll convince him that I still got my powers and stuff. And then when the rock shows up, he's got me on the inside. So like I could do whatever. Because I was kind of confused. It's like, why are you going alone? Because it felt like she was saying, I'm going back so that this prophecy doesn't happen. And I'm going to be subservient to Memnon now. Yes, I think that she knew that if she stayed, Memnon would eventually track her down and kill everybody. So in order to avoid that future, she uh, decided to leave. It makes more sense talking about it now. Like, okay, Memnon would have tracked her to their camp, slaughtered everybody. Instead, she goes back and then they go to him, you know, they like, because he doesn't know where they are and he just kind of wants the sorceress. So like, he doesn't even, he's not even aware that these guys have all banded together. So they could kind of do their surprise attack while he's like reorganizing, I guess, now that he has sorceress back. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think, I think this is more about protecting because she sees like a child die in her vision. I think she's, she's more concerned about stopping that from happening than saving herself. But, you know, she's got the gift of foresight. So how much does she actually know about the future here? I don't know. I think in the moment she's only concerned about saving those people. So she goes back. We get another scene. Like Memnon's men, they're not going to fight. You know, they haven't seen this sorceress in like days. No one has seen her alive. They assume she's dead. And that if they go into battle the next day, they're surely going to die. Right on cue, she shows up. Says that she sees that they will have a great victory. She doesn't say they will have a great victory. She says, I see a great victory. <laughs> like she uses, she chooses those words super carefully. <laughs> Fair enough. She, she foresees a great victory and also mentions that their enemies will be revealed to them. Which, duh, like that is, that is the most like Miss Cleo line in the entire, <laughs> in her entire spiel, like her gimmick of this psychic stuff. Like, of course your enemies are going to be revealed. To, like he, but he already knows who his enemies are. He's, you know, he hates that, that rock guy. He hates Balthazar. 
So now comes like the infiltration of Gamora. And th there's some really fun stuff here. Now I'm going to try and keep the rest of this movie straight. It does sort of become a hodgepodge of like all these different plot threads happening at once. It's kind of like the end of the mummy movies, right? Where there's like two or three different kind of storylines going on and converging you know you have different teams and groups of people like performing different like sequences and then they're intercutting between them all yeah so i mean i'm gonna jump ahead a little bit just to finish out that scene before we move on so that soldier who's concerned about you know losing and all of well, memnon just kills that guy i guess uh to make an example and tells the rest of his men to be ready to fight in the next day meanwhile Balthazar and Isis and everyone are sneaking in. And I love that his tactic is to dress in drag in this like cart full of prostitutes to get into the city. Yeah, I never suspect. Like he comes in through the cart like a Trojan horse. I think Matthias comes up over the wall. They all kind of have their own ways of getting in. I just remember, I wrote down, because I remember at this point, like they really start leaning heavy on The Rock's facial expressions. I guess maybe because the character is becoming less of a loner and kind of maybe opening up more. But like, I feel like there's a lot of just shots of The Rock. He won't say anything. And I'll just sort of like, look. And he'll give like that, whatever, the smolder right didn't some people used to joke that the rock is smoldering like when he looks at you or something oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like that's kind of how it starts feeling here at the end like no use for words just looks some of his charm comes out here like i, I love that one-liner when balthazar gets out of the cart and he's like in full drag and matthias goes no need for concern miss nice joke there so meanwhile while all that's all happening phylos and arpeed they're a team their task is to sort of set explosives yeah. throughout the palace all this stuff's happening at once they seal the gates from the inside so once the fighting starts they'll sort of trap everybody inside the city walls yeah to quote another podcast they lock the gates <laughs> they lock the gates now we get to the scene where memnon tests his sorceress he tests her loyalty and her ability to see into the future with the the snake test we get some more of cgi which is used very sparingly i feel in this movie you know like uh, actual like getting a cgi model of something like a snake like this and i think it's kind of fun you know i mean it's i don't think they're going for 100 percent realism with the cobra thing but like it looks cool as hell yeah, I buy it. I like the way it looks because it's kind of hyper-realistic almost, which I think makes it work because of the type of movie we're in. You know, it's like this snake definitely is thinking and has like an ad. It feels more like cartoon logic, but like realistic looking like the snake could understand you if you talk to it or something. Okay. Uh, All right. Yeah. Not, not uncanny Valley sort of stuff. No, not sort of uncanny Valley thing, but just that it, they gave it like personality. Yeah. Somehow. I don't know. It's a cool scene. His test for her is he's got six urns on a lazy Susan and he has his men drop four cobras into them. So there are going to be two empty urns. He covers them, spins the table and then, and uh, she has to find the two urns that have no snakes in them. And, and he definitely does not believe that she will be able to, to do it. Well, she sort of does it. I mean, she is successful in what she is trying to do, is how I will phrase it. She finds one empty jar, and then with her second attempt, she does find a snake, but she knows there's the snake, and then kind of uses that as a weapon against Memnon. It's kind of charmed, like, in yes. a way. Yes. Yeah, and she, like, has it, and it's, like, wrapped around her arm, and it doesn't seem like 
that's what I kind of meant. Like, I felt like she can talk to animals in this movie because before when she ran away, the scene ends when she's leaving the rocks camp or Balthazar's camp or Queen Isis's camp. And she's like going up to the camel and she's like, okay, camel, now I'm going to tell you a bunch of stuff and just listen. And then it like, the scene kind of cuts and yes. it goes away, you know? And so like, I feel like she kind of whispered to this snake in her mind that like, chill out. I'm not going to hurt you. Like, let's scare the hell out of this guy. Yeah. If she were a Dungeons and Dragons character, she would be adept at animal handling. That's for sure. Hell yeah. So that's that scene. While that's all happening, Matthias is scaling the, the city walls. I've mentioned Phylos and RP are preparing the explosives. And then Balthazar and the rest of the rebels are basically just fighting guards. You know, they're not doing anything more complicated than that. The movie sort of erupts into a proper fight montage. Matthias bursts in. He begins fighting with Memnon. And then over the course of that sequence, so I'm going to sort of jump around and breeze through some pieces here. Memnon starts this fight with one sword and then he gets two swords and he ends it with two flaming swords. So it like just keeps escalating and escalating and escalating until the very end of the movie, which is really cool to see just sword fighting you know, have stages like that is, is really neat. Yeah, I got to just say, like, I, I was watching the sword fight and stuff and I was going like, oh, you know, like I wish someone picked up like a scorpion blade or like had some kind of weird shield and then the swords catch on fire. And I'm like, yep. OK, I'm good. <laughs> this is all I needed. I'm happy now. While that's happening, Balthazar finds Tachmet. And we get some uh, comeuppance there. He kills Tacman for betraying them and, and for killing his own father. So that's cool. Yeah, that little guy was a weasel the whole movie. I was waiting for him to eat it. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm going to say this now. I feel like Tacmet was kind of a wasted character. Oh, definitely. He should have been conspiring to, like, take over after you know what i'm saying like once all the dust has settled he would i feel like he's the kind of guy who would like sneak in after and try and make his move yeah he's in the movie to betray matthias at the beginning and then at the end he gets his comeuppance but like that's kind of it i feel like he could have been like the secondhand man well they tried to play him off a little like that but he's not necessary they don't need him like he doesn't offer any thing else like he's not a strategic dude he's not a great warrior he's a guy who murdered his dad right like that was his role and it just kind of feels like he's sitting around like eating and drinking the rest of the movie i feel like they should have made a decision one way or the other either don't include him in this movie at all or do more with him and they kind of fail at both he ends up dying which is fine as we're getting close to the climax of this sword fight between memnon and matthias the sorceress sort of inadvertently causes Matthias to be uh, shot with an arrow. She sees the archer coming and like sort of runs out in front of him, but he still ends up getting shot with the arrow anyway. Yeah, and it, and it wasn't even anybody in particular. It was just like some random guard shoots him in the back with an arrow. And I was wondering if it was scorpion tipped. And if the reason it didn't really hurt the rock this time is because he's already got it flowing through his blood. Right. I mean, what if it works like a vaccination and, you know, like now he's got a natural uh, immunity to the scorpion venom. It's not elaborated upon. So we can only guess. Like a lot of this, nothing is really elaborated <laughs> on. You just got to like whatever they say, that's all. That's it. She ends up managing to like kill that archer. Matthias digs that arrow out of his back, grabs the bow and shoots it straight at Memnon. Now we've seen him catch the the arrow in the past right they sort of set this scene up and it doesn't matthias say something like catch this 
Uh, I can't remember what he says, but he's definitely got some kind of line. And I was just, you know, like the arrogance of Memnon to be like, he's just going to stand there and give him this shot because he's like, oh, I caught an arrow that one of my weakling guards, who's like a easy 150 pounds less than this dude and can't kick as much ass. And I saw the rock shoot a guy with a bow and arrow in the opening scene of this movie. And he went flying out of a window like over the trees into the forest, never to be seen again. I have a feeling he's going to shoot it a little faster and a little harder than one of Memnon's lackeys. Just the balls on this guy. <laughs> to be like, it's because it's not like Ozymandias where like no one can sort of sh- make a bullet go faster than anyone else, right? You shoot a gun, you shoot a gun. Like you catch a bullet, that's one thing. But like this is an arrow shot by two completely different people in the movie. There's no way to assume that like you're going to be able to catch this one. <laughs> like It's just so funny to me how he's like, take your shot. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. And, and the way it's cut together, this moment happens just as it appears that the rebels are going to lose this fight by this point in the battle they're kind of getting their asses handed to them by the by memnon's men and arpid and phylos you know the army has sort of intervened and sort of stopped them from setting off the explosives but arpid makes his like last ditch effort to get that fuse lit yeah good for him so now the explosions are going off matthias's arrow pierces memnon knocking him straight off the top of that wall essentially the rebels take the city and memnon's own men now recognize him as the new king because the way that they operate is that the fiercest warrior among them is their king their de facto king like it or not kind of situation too and we should say like there's a great shot of a flaming memnon corpse flying through the night sky at one point (laughs) it was just so crazy love it all that's left is really like the final sequence the sort of epilogue balthazar leaves good terms with matthias telling him nubian's eyes will be watching you scorpion king so now he has a name so like why did he call him that why did balthazar just decide to like be like i donned the scorpion king from now on why (laughs) i mean (laughs) it's fine but it's just so like because we have to yes yeah 100 percent. which that's why i man i i fucking love movies Like, that is so great. Like, logic does not need to make any sense. No, yeah. At some point in the writer's room, they were like, okay, well, we, at some point, we have to call him Scorpion King. So that's where they put it, right, in that, in that final scene. Like you said, I agree with you. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I don't know why Balthazar, of all people, would call him Scorpion King, but... That's why Memnon, that's like, the, I mean, we didn't have to do all that stuff with the blood that I was talking about before that I kind of misinterpreted when he got shot with the arrow. But like, if Memnon had just gone by Scorpion King, it would have been so simple. Like, and that's such a cool name to sort of invoke fear or power or whatever, you know, over his army. And it's such a cool symbol that like, it's like a hand-me-down name, you know, he's the new Dread Pirate Roberts now, you know, and right, now this right. Scorpion King is going to be a... a a cool one for a while so until he turns into a horrible scorpion monster but that's for another day oh dude can i roll back real quick to when um like the castle starts exploding so this has to be like the first time these people have seen explosions right possibly yeah this is like the first time gunpowder is used in the history of this of these of this movie like in the timeline of this movie so like explosions are happening soldiers must just be like dying 
from like not being able to process what's happening and like being scared to death or having heart attacks or like losing their mind to be like, what, what do I even call this? Like, it's yeah. like raining fire from the skies and stuff. At one point when we first see it, Phylos refers to it as his Chinese powder. So, you know, presumably they're hearing about this explosive powder uh, off in the East how funny it must have been for the soldiers who are like, yeah, we're like hard as hell. We've been through everything. We've seen it all. And then all of a sudden this new stuff called like gunpowder and, and things are starting to blow up. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, how do you comprehend that when you're fighting in a battle for the first time? It just, I don't know. It's a silly thing that I thought of. No, totally. Then we have a scene with the sorceress. She tells him she uh, sees a future of great peace. We, you know, learn that the whole sorceress sex thing was a lie created by her ancestors to keep kings from taking advantage then finally matthias asks you know like how long will this era of peace last and she simply responds nothing lasts forever and that is where we end the scorpion king we as the viewer we know you know he's ultimately going to become this conqueror type this sort of evil character who will make a deal with anubis and turn into a big giant scorpion monster you know and maybe she sees that i can't tell So that's what awaits him. I'm hoping, I mean, I'm not sure how far this franchise will get to that part of his life. I haven't seen any of these. You know, if you're listening, we're going to be experiencing these all for the first time. I don't know that this is going to necessarily get to the point where he's like making deals with Anubis and becomes an evil character. I feel like that would be a cool storytelling decision to watch your hero become a villain by the end of it. But I don't know. I get the sense that because they're all straight to DVD, they're going to keep Matthias like a hero. You don't think we're ever going to get there? I don't know. I I don't have high hopes. The most I'm hoping for, which I don't, which this maybe this is too high maybe i do have high hopes is that like you know the last scene of the last movie is the first scene of the mummy returns yeah i would love that you know so i'll keep my fingers crossed but i think i think this is really gonna just be kind of a um knockoff conan the barbarian adventure series so every movie will be like its own kind of standalone adventure but you know I, i could be surprised i hope so And I'll be honest with you, Dan, if that's what it turns out to be, I think I'm cool with that. I did not think I would be, to be perfectly honest with you. Like, I did not expect to have as much fun with this. I mean, maybe because I like Conan stuff so much that it has enough of that vibe. It's almost like, again, like, even though they get away with so much, Conan gets away with a lot, too. And that is R-rated. You know, this feels like Conan light or like something. I know. I just know, like, if I had been a teenager... Instead of in my 20s when this came out, like I'd have been all over this movie. I'd have loved this movie. As it is now, I really like it. Like, I think it's a lot of fun. And, you know, and I think the most important thing is it knows what it is. A lot of movies have these identity crises. And, like, for what's going on, like, the movie knows what it's doing. You know, it might not always be so straight and clear, or it might be too clear that you want a more elaborate explanation for what's happening. And it's hard to just take things at face value, but it's not, it just wants to be simple and have Mm -hmm. fun. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's what's so much fun about it is like, it's got a good spirit. Uh, It's got a very fun vibe. It's got like those crazy movie moments where it's just like happening because, and that's why I think uh, I really liked it. And I'm, I'm can't believe I'm saying like, I'm looking kind of looking forward to seeing where the Scorpion King series goes. Yeah. Likewise, you sort of talked about how the Conan movies, you know, are, are rated. And, you know, I think like the Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan movies are more like the original, like Robert E. Howard Conan, you know, the original pulp stories. And then you've got your like Marvel comics 
Conan the Barbarian, which is more kid oriented. And I think this movie is more like that, more like the Marvel Conan. And, you know, like, I think that's fine. I think you can have your adult Conan. Yeah. You can have your uh, kids Conan. It's all silly, you know, sword and sandal bullshit. But, you know, that's OK. Like you, I was also really surprised at how much I legitimately enjoyed this one. Now, it's no classic. You know, I, don't, I didn't give it like five stars on Letterboxd or anything like that. But it's definitely one of those movies that like if I want to scratch that itch, that sort of magical sword and sorcery kind of thing. This is a perfectly good example of that. And I think that it's a little bit underrated in that respect. I don't think people talk about it as much as they should. And I'm frankly looking forward to whatever happens with this Conan or with this uh, Scorpion King reboot that we're going to be getting hopefully in the next couple of years. As we've been talking about it, here's what I want to happen with the Scorpion King reboot. I want him to be transported from his time into our time and do sort of like a fish out of water thing with him. And I think that would that I'd enjoy. I think I'd be down for that. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. By Crom. That'll do it for this episode of The Return of the Monsters That Made Us. But we will be back Friday, February 23rd, uh, as I mentioned before, for Steven Summers' 2004 blockbuster monster mashup Van Helsing, starring oh, Hugh boy. Jackman, Kate Beckinsale. Yeah, that's a fun cast for sure. You can follow us on X aka twitter at monster made pod we're also on blue sky at monster made pod just in case twitter doesn't work out and we're also on instagram and facebook at the monsters that made us and you can follow me pretty much everywhere at dan cologne mike where can listeners find you you can find me online at the mikester that's m-i-k-e-s-t-i-r and you can find all the other shows i'm on at cageclub.me i want to give a quick shout out to our latest patreon supporter kevin irvin thank you so much kevin thank you we appreciate the support uh, if you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a patreon supporter like kevin you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us uh, i believe i've said before that every dollar that we get through the patreon gets put right back into the show and it helps us bring more of this stuff to you guys your support is very important to us and we really can't thank you enough for that you can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on itunes and our t-shirts are available on t public you can find a link for that in our aforementioned twitter and instagram bios for all other things cage club related just head on over to cageclub.me that's cageclub.me stay spooky everybody <laughs>